You're listening to the SSPX podcast. This is a series of conferences given by Father Thomas Asher of the Society of St. Pius X on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be seen as a private retreat, a retreat that you can do while you're sheltering in place or at your house, perhaps with some extra time. For more conferences, resources, such as downloadable uh, instructions and information about Holy Week, as well as live mass times, please visit corona.sspx.online. Or for all of our conferences, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now here's Father Asher. Our Lord's Agony in the Garden, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 39 to 55. And going out, he went according to his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was come to the place, he said to them, Pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn away from them a stone's cast, and kneeling down, he prayed, saying, Father, if thou wilt remove this chalice from me, but yet not my will but thine be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed the longer. And his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why sleep you? Arise, pray, lest you enter into temptation. As he was yet speaking, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus for to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, dost thou betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And they that were about him, seeing what would follow, said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answering said, Suffer ye thus far. And when he had touched his ear, he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and magistrates of the temple and the ancients that were come unto him, Are ye come out, as it were, against a thief with swords and clubs? When I was daily with you in the temple, you did not stretch forth your hands against me. But this is the your hour and the power of darkness. And apprehending him, they led him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were sitting about it, Peter was in the midst of them. So before we begin, I'd just kind of like to do a recap. So we've been looking at, in all of these conferences, the life of Christ from our Lord's youth. We've seen the the Annunciation, our Lord's birth in Bethlehem. We've seen the presentation. We saw the coming of the Magi, our Lord's flight into Egypt, the, the return to Nazareth, and we saw his loss in the temple. And then moving into his adulthood, we saw his baptism. Um, We saw him go and fast for 40 days in the desert. We saw him tempted by the devil. We saw the first miracle there at Cana. We saw him casting out the sellers from the temple. We saw the various miracles, um, some of the various miracles that our Lord uh, worked. Um, We saw our Lord's dealing with sinners, with the woman taken in adultery and the, the woman anointing his feet in the home of Simon the Pharisee. We saw the holy women, you know, in contrast, let's say, to the sinful, um, when looking at Mary and Martha. And we saw, of course, our Lord calming the, the, the storms on the sea. And so we're about now to, to enter into, you know, some considerations on our Lord's um, passion and death. Um, certainly we could spend, we could spend a year, literally, focusing on the life of our Lord uh, in, with regard to his public ministry, 
all of the various you know sermons that he gave, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, in chapter five, six, and seven, there is a, a gold mine of, of uh, things that we could could meditate on. All of the other miracles that our, wor- our Lord worked, we seeing how he interacted with the various classes of people that that approached him, be it the lepers, be it the the rich men, be it the the, the high priest or the scribes or the Pharisees when interacting with them the various sinners, the Samaritan woman at the well, or the Samaritan woman coming and begging him for a miracle. That's a, an amazing thing to to really reflect upon and consider the way our Lord treats her, and yet how her faith ends up delivering her, you know, granting, you know, the granting of her request. Um, seeing the way that he deals with Judas, I mean, throughout the time of the public ministry, all of these um, examples that our Lord gives us um, are are there for our edification and for our imitation. Now, we're going to go ahead now and um, move into the, the time of our Lord's Passion, beginning with the agony in the garden. We'll then look at our, our Lord's crucifixion, and then later we'll, we'll look, of course, at his, his glorious resurrection. So verse 39, and going out, he went according to his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. Now, Judas knows where to find him, and that he will certainly be coming for for him. And yet, notice that our Lord doesn't change his normal routine. This is maybe a good reminder that in in dark times, in in trials, in crosses and tribulations, we don't want to change our normal routine as far as being faithful in our spiritual duties and in our pious practices, um, being faithful in our duties of state. That's one of the principles that St. Ignatius gives that in times of desolation, no change. So when cares and worries and danger come, we don't, we don't fret. We just commit ourselves to being faithful and even more faithful and even more sacrificial in those times. Notice that he goes, we're told, to a garden in order to repair the fault um, committed by Adam in, in, in a garden. So verse 40, And when he was come to the place, he said to them, Pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Um, in Mark's gospel, uh, we have the addition, additional words of our Lord where he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And certainly during times of uh, retreat, when we're, when we're on retreat, we go off for a week, um, we're very strong there. The spirit is very strong um, in these times of quiet. And yet we know, again, when the dark, dark night you know, uh, descends upon us or the storms kick up, we know how, how weak our flesh is. And so we don't want to simply rely on our our human strength or the strength of our will, we have to pray. We have to to fortify ourselves. St. Augustine, um, famous quote from him, he says, you know, that God does not ask the impossible uh, of anyone, but he does demand that the person do what they are able. And what we are always able to do is pray. And of course, by prayer, we gain the strength then to do what on our own we would be unable to do. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn away from them a stone's cast, and kneeling down, he prayed. And Mark, uh, Mark uh, in his gospel, he adds, saying the self-same words. So sometimes Catholics get criticized for repeating the same prayer over and over again, and yet this is exactly what we see our Lord do in the garden. He goes and he prays again and again and again, using the self-same words. Notice that our Lord is kneeling. Now this is, this, as we are told in the gospel, um, our Lord is God. He's praying to his Father, who, who likewise is God. Um, and yet he, he doesn't adopt a, an overly casual or, or overly familiar posture, but he gives God, you know, uh, the reverence that's due to him. 
and which Jesus in his human nature can offer to him. In another gospel, um, we're told that he falls on his face. I mean, he is he is uh, crushed under the weight of, of fear and sorrow and disgust, we might say, seeing the sins that he's taking on himself. There are various causes for, for this agony and for this pain. The first, of course, is the vision of the physical torments and the pain that he's going to suffer. You and I, you know, when, when we have to go to the dentist or maybe we have to give a speech, you know, our imagination brings those you know, terrors into, into the present. And of course we fear, we dread having to go through it. And yet we know that once we've actually, you know, given the speech or gone to the dentist, we often look back and say, well, you know, that wasn't so bad because our imagination is overactive and tends to, to, you know, make things worse than they really truly are. But with our Lord, there's not this, um, inordinate, uh, movement. Um, he sees clearly each and every physical torment that's coming and we know that this is a source of, of agony for him because it's precisely this that he prays, that, you know, the father, this chalice, you know, the, that the father would let pass. Another cause of his pain, of course, are the visions of the sins of all men, which he took upon himself um, as if they were his own. I often explain on retreat, you know, think back, you know, over your life. And often, you know, there's one sin that maybe we committed and we look back and we think to ourselves, man, I can't. I can't believe I did that. I'm so I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I don't know how I could have been so so malicious or so vindictive or so perverted or so whatever you know the sin is that you know when when the memory of it comes to us we we wince. You know how could I have been so selfish? How could I have been so so uncaring or whatever it is? And and we we're really ashamed, and that shame stays with us. Um, imagine our Lord, who is sinlessness itself. And the most heinous crimes committed by men throughout the history of time, these things are dumped on our Lord. And again, he sees them and he feels that revulsion, that disgust that you and I feel when we look back over our, you know, the sins of our life. You know, especially when we get older, we look and maybe the way that we treated our parents and we think, you know, what, what, what a little monster I was. I can't believe I did that, you know. Um, I can't believe I was such a, such a headache to them that I caused them such heartache. And we truly sorrow, but that's, that's something very small. Imagine again, all of the crimes of all men, um, and our Lord taking these on himself as if they were his own. Imagine the loathing and the disgust that sinlessness itself would have felt. And then the last cause of agony, um, the last one we'll look at is the ingratitude of men. So imagine our Lord is taking all this on. He's going to endure this uh, this bitter execution, all of the scourging and the you know the the, the beatings and the, the being nailed to a cross and bleeding out on the cross and the sufferings it's going to inflict upon his mother, having to witness that. And then he sees that for most men, it will be it will be useless in a sense. It will be a waste of time in their regard because they won't take advantage of it. You know, very often, if you know, you and I, if we're called to make some sacrifice and we know that our family or our, you know, our, our friends or whatever, that they're going to be grateful. We're making this huge sacrifice. We're taking on this, you know, massive um, undertaking. And we know that everyone's going to say in the end, hey, good job. We really appreciate that. Imagine, you know, pouring yourself out. And then, the, you know, the person that you love that you were doing it for said, you know, Pfft. Well, I didn't ask you to do that. You know what? What do you want? That was well, why'd you waste your time on that? How 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 painful that is when that happens in our lives. Um, these are the sources of our Lord's agony. And again, for the love of us, He takes all of this on. 
despite the fact that so many won't profit from it, those who, seeing this, um, come to realize the love of God and allow that love to kindle a like love in their hearts in return to our Lord, for them he does it. He takes this on. So our Lord is praying, and we read verse 42, saying, Father, if thou wilt remove this chalice from me, but yet not my will, but thine be done. In fact, he says um, in the gospel, we read, Father, all things are possible to thee. Now, strictly speaking, it, it was possible. You know, God could have chosen another path um, by which man could have been redeemed. And this is what theologians call the antecedent will of God. So the will of God without reference to the actions of men. And yet, according to the consequent will of God, in other words, what he ends up effectively willing, taking all things into consideration. And so this is effectively what the Father has willed, and there won't be any changing it. And our Lord knows this, and yet he prays, and he certainly does so to give us a an example to follow, that it's okay to pray um, to be delivered from evils. When when we are sick or when we are burdened, of course, I mean, our human nature, I mean, that, that we each have, it naturally, like our Lord's, it recoils from pain. Our Lord sees what's coming, and being a true man, he is horrified by this, and he prays to be delivered, as, as we, of course, are permitted to pray to be delivered as well. But with our prayer, we must always have, along with it, as our Lord does, that resignation. We want, ultimately, only what God wants. We would never, you know, if God, if it's, if it's your will that I fall on my face today and make a fool of myself, well, then so be it. Personally, I don't want it. But if that's what's going to help get me to heaven, then thy will be done. And this kind of attitude really has the effect of lessening our crosses. There's an old uh, axiom that says that the cross pursues those who flee from it, and the cross flees from those who embrace it. And I've seen this demonstrated many times in my own life and, and in the lives of the faithful. We, we complain, we gripe, we, we grouse about, you know, whatever difficulties or trials or crosses we're having. And then finally, you know, maybe, maybe we finally say, okay, Lord, if this is what you want me to have, I accept it. And then suddenly it goes away, or at the very least, the weight of the cross is lessened. If God sends us a cross, it's precisely to help us have the proper dispositions, which is resignation to his holy will. And once we've done that, the reason for the cross is no longer present, and so very often it will go away, or as I say, at the very least, be lessened. Verse 43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed the longer. Now here, this angel that comes to strengthen him, I think I may have mentioned it in a previous uh, conference, um, it's said that that was probably a vision given to his, to his human soul of all who would make a return to Christ for his love, all who would profit from his sacrifice. And that would be, I mean, all those beautiful souls down through the history of the world who would, would console him and give him strength. Another beautiful detail in this verse is that being in an agony, he prayed the longer. Now, remember the crosses, the trials, the agony. It's designed by God to help get us back on our knees. But unfortunately, very often in our life, you know, maybe when everything's going smooth, okay, I'm saying my rosary, I'm doing my morning and evening prayers, I'm, I'm saying my grace at meals, I'm doing, you know, my, my regular pious devotions. And then when sickness or illness or cross or something hits me, very often I give up prayer and I start looking for some sort of 
human consolations, and this is precisely the wrong thing to do. When we are in pain, we have to pray even more. Of course, we have to draw even closer to, to Almighty God, to our Lord, to the saints. And with our prayer, though, again, as we said, there always must be that resignation to ultimately to the will of God, because ultimately that's what makes us saints, isn't it? Now, St. James in his, in his epistle says, um, is anyone among you sad? He says, well, then let him pray. How often, you know, people, you know, they fall into depression or melancholy and they give up prayer, you know, and it's precisely at those times that we need to draw close to the source of joy. Verse 44, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Now, this is an actual medical phenomenon. It's uh, referred to as hematidrosis, and it is something that people suffer when they're undergoing a state of great uh, mental or psychological anguish. There have been cases of this even in modern times. And what happens is, is in this state, the, the blood vessels or capillaries below the surface of the skin, they rupture. And, of course, it then mixes in the, in the pores uh, the, 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 uh, with the sweat glands, you know, producing sweat and the blood mixing together. And you see the person's face or, or body stained with blood. Now, we're told that it, with our Lord, it's not just a little bit, but it's so much that it's... Um, it's actually trickling down and, and soaking the ground on, that he's, you know, kneeling upon. Um, we can see the incredible physical uh, agony that our Lord is enduring, along with, again, the mental stress because of the, the visions and, and the psychological anguish of, of the men's ingratitude and the sins that he's taking on, as we said. And one effect to keep in mind of hematidrosis is that it makes the skin very tender. We're told that it's almost like, you know, how you're, you get a bruise, you know, the, the, the blood vessels break beneath the skin and you know, the skin turns blue where the bruise is. And it's very, very tender to the touch, you know, and much more so than another spot on your arm where there's, where there's no bruise. Or perhaps uh, we might think of it as, you know, getting a sunburn. You know, you get a sunburn, somebody slaps you on the back, normally that wouldn't hurt. And yet with... Um, with the sunburn, it makes it quite agonizing. This hematidrosis makes the skin very tender, like it's like it's been bruised or burned. And so we need to remember that when our Lord later, when he's manhandled and, and, and beaten and scourged and, and crucified, that his flesh would have been even, even that much more tender. Our Lord is a perfect man with, with perfect senses. So he's, he's not uh, a dullard that you know doesn't feel pain. But he is very sensitive now. And then, of course, on top of that, he has this condition of hematidrosis, which makes it even, even more of an agony later when these pains are inflicted upon him. Verse 45, and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Now, a few times during this, uh, we've seen Martha, we've seen the, you know, the disciples in the boat rebuking, in a sense, our Lord saying, have you no care? Do you, do you not even care? And yet, um, I think our Lord could have said that quite rightly and quite justly to, to Peter, James, and John. Do you not care? Have you not seen what I'm going through? You're just laying here sleeping. And yet he doesn't do that. He rebukes them very gently because he understands that their, their, their failing is not from malice, or, but it's rather from weakness. And we're told that they are, they are sleeping for sorrow. It is um, a truth of our, of our psychology that when we are sad, it drains our strength, it debilitates us, which is why we have to be very much on guard against sadness, 
and drive it from us. Verse 46, and he said to them, why sleep you? Arise, pray, lest you enter into temptation. And this is really the key, as we said, this watchfulness in prayer, lest we be tempted. Verse 47, as he was yet speaking, behold, a multitude and he that was called Judas, one of the 12 went before them and drew near to Jesus for to kiss him. Now, Judas will betray our Lord and he's going to do it under a prearranged signal, which of course is a sign of love. Now, this sin of Judas is um, equated very often in, in sermons and in the writings of various authors to someone making a bad communion. You know, when we come to the communion rail, we kneel down, we want, we're, we're receiving our Lord into ourselves. It's, a, it's a, an expression of love. But if a soul approaches the communion rail and receives our Lord into a soul that's been blackened by sin, it's as though they are betraying him into the hands of his enemies but again, under, under a mark of affection or a mark of love. Remember what St. Paul said about, about men um, eating and drinking, you know, the body and blood of our Lord unto their own destruction. Verse 48, and Jesus said to him, Judas, does thou betray the son of man with a kiss? Now, our Lord is not deceived by Judas's act of kindness. He knows what Judas is up to. And in fact, he's still trying to call Judas back from the edge. In one of the Gospels, remember, he addresses him as friend. It's not too late. He can still change. He can still turn around. I mean, I was thinking this uh, this Holy Week, how what if Judas, you know, what if he had allowed his heart to be touched by grace and then suddenly turned to the man and said, wait a minute, this is not him. Where, you know, I mean, he, he could have um, led the soldiers astray, and yet he doesn't. And this happens, you know, when we allow ourselves to go down the road to sin, there comes a point when, uh, you know, we become hardened and we close ourselves off to God's grace. This is why, you know, especially when we, when we fall into sin, if we have that misfortune, to never give up on prayer, but always to stay close to our Lord. If we refuse to give up on prayer, sooner or later, we'll be given the strength to get back to confession and we will... We will save our souls, but you know the despair that comes um, along with sin that makes us simply give up and abandon the all means for salvation, that is what is unforgivable because we refuse to ask for forgiveness. Verse 49 and 50, and they that were about him, seeing what would follow, said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, we know from the other gospel that the culprit in this, uh, in this attack, of course, is Peter, who, who asks, you know, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then without waiting for an answer, um, he, he lashes out. So a reminder to uh, maybe uh, avoid precipitation, to, to not let our enthusiasm um, outrun our obedience. Um, and to make matters worse, it's kind of, I mean, almost, I hate to say it, but a little bit comical to make matters worse in his haste, he, he ends up missing his target. So he doesn't even strike a, a, a good blow. We saw how our Lord, remember when he drove out the money changers from the temple, he took his time, he planned his attack, and then he, he gained victory, right? Peter here just flies off the handle. And again, it, it, uh, accomplishes nothing effectively. Verse 51 but Jesus answering said, Suffer ye thus far. And when he had touched his ear, he healed him. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we have a little bit more detail given. Our Lord tells Peter, Put up thy sword. Think thou that I cannot ask my father, 
and he will give me presently more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? Then the disciples, all leaving him, fled. Now our Lord um, tells Peter that those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. And we might draw a parallel in our own lives. Okay, we might not be wielding swords or taking up arms. But the point I think our Lord would make um, or apply in our own lives would be that it, those who rely on only human means are going to be lost. And this is something we cannot do. Now, I like pointing out, you know, notice these legions of angels that our Lord referred to. Um, he could call on his father and be delivered, and this, this angelic host would come down and wipe his enemies off the face of the earth. And if we go back to our Lord's entrance into the world, um, I like to say, you know, there were legions of angels that praised and glorified him and uh, announced his, his coming. And yet now, when it's time for him to exit the, the world, this same army of angels is pretty much ordered to stand down. We see that the disciples all leaving him fled. This is something, you know, we might point out that when when men abandon Christ, they often, well, they're allies, they're unified in that, in their in their hatred of the Catholic Church. The church's biggest enemies very often are precisely former Catholics, those who have abandoned Christ's mystical body. But our Lord, what is what is his response? We see how he touches and heals even now. And this is a, a reminder of what our Lord has demanded from each of us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, to bless those who curse you. We'll see this again on the cross when he when he's going to forgive our enemies. This is a hard um, commandment, and yet it is incumbent upon us as Christians. And so our Lord doesn't just give us the command, but he leads by example. Verse 52. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the magistrates of the temple and the ancients that were come, un, come unto him, Are ye come out, as it were, against a thief with swords and clubs? Verse 53. When I was daily with you in the temple, you did not stretch forth your hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I think it was uh, Bishop Sheen who said that evil, evil has its hour, and yet in the end, you know, the good will always triumph. Now, persecution and crosses in our life are inevitable. In fact, St. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he makes it clear that all who desire to live justly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Our Lord told us, too, that don't, don't be surprised when the world hates you, for it has hated me before. And this persecution, as we say, it's inevitable, and in a way, it's actually good. We remember, remember the old saying that the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. It's true um, in the church as a whole, and it's true to a certain extent even in our own spiritual life. The fruit that's born um, in times of desolation, in times of trial, really makes us that much more strong, and we, we gain a growth in that that we would not have if everything was, was easy and, uh, and sweet and, and consoling. Verse 54, And apprehending him, they led him to the high priest's house, but Peter followed afar off. 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were sitting around it, Peter was in the midst of them. Now, in trials, um, the various trials that follow, you know, we see the religious leaders doing everything they can to condemn our Lord. And we see the civil leaders doing everything, you know, Pilate doing everything he can to release our Lord and see justice done. But 
Of course, Pilate trying to please both sides, trying to serve justice, serve God, and serve mammon, you know, please the crowd, he ends up actually causing our Lord even more pain, more suffering. And we should note how it, it makes explicit that Peter does end up following, but he follows from a distance, from afar off. Um, he keeps his distance from Christ, and this is really dangerous. You know, if he, if he had uh, fled, he wouldn't have denied our Lord. And if he'd been arrested along with Jesus, and there's no escape, um, he would have, you know, died a martyr. But it's because he tries to do both, you know, that, that he ends up falling and, and betraying and denying our Lord. Notice that he draws near to the fire, all right? It's, it's cold out, and he's seeking human comfort. He's, he's looking for human consolations, and that, too, is um, a slippery slope that leads him to the fall. Again, if he had remained in the shadows and, and suffered, you know, the physical discomfort of, of the cold, that too would have you know, been a protection for him. Now, Peter, it said, wasn't afraid to die. Remember, he had just taken on um, all those soldiers in the garden, um, and yet what Peter feared was a death that seemed to have no meaning. He was ready to go down in a blaze of glory, but what he feared was the humiliation of the cross. Again, a, a death with apparently no meaning and no glory. And so, too, in, in our own lives, you know, maybe let's, let's try and learn from Peter. In our lives, we may be ready to embrace, you know, certain practices of religion um, if they're according to our own taste or if they bring with them a, a certain esteem from our fellow man, from our neighbor. But we have to ask, is that really what God wants of me? It is so easy for self-will to insinuate it, itself even into the very, you know, best and holiest of our of our works and undertakings. Am I doing the will of God? Is this what God wants from me? Or is this just what I prefer? Is it something that will bring me, as I said, a, a certain uh, esteem from my fellow man? Let's be on guard. So we will end the commentary there. As always, I encourage you to take your, your gospel, go back um, one line at a time, and, and ponder these verses yourself. Reflect upon the lessons that are here and how they may apply in your individual life. Take care and God bless you.